Okay, let's let's get started. The last lesson we introduced the Gospel of John and we read through verses one to eighteen. This was extremely deep waters, and we're not out of the deep waters yet. There's because we just we just stopped because we ran out the clock, and so we're gonna we're gonna pick up where where we left off before. Uh, just a quick review of what we hit last week because it's been a while. Um, we talked about John's gospel, how it relates to the other, the other three gospels that it's that it was written. Uh, history indicates it was written last, so it's filling in things that weren't in the other gospels. For example, the emphasis on the divinity of Christ, um, and the second half of the gospel focuses on the last week of Jesus's life, the events leading up to the crucifixion plus the resurrection. There's a lot more in this gospel about that. And we're talking about the nature of, beginning the nature of the Word of God, the Son of God, who was before all ages and through whom all things came into existence. So we're talking about Jesus, the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, is just God becoming flesh, but he existed for all time before that. Uh, and then we talked about the way that the early Christians viewed Jesus and the way they explained the relationship between the Son and the Father. It would be like a ray of light proceeding from the Son or a stream proceeding from a well of water on a hillside, that he came from the Father, he proceeded from the Father. So, so he is definitely divine. He's not a created being like we are, just to understand that. Uh, also, we talked about a lot about the, the there's so much reference to the Old Testament, so many allusions to things in the Old Testament, and we'll see that more as we as we continue in on the story. So I just want to pick up uh, where we left off going through the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it starts off, says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. And then in verse 10 it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. And then verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, question for you. The other three Gospels talk about, definitely Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about Jesus being the Christ, that He was the anointed one sent by God, King over God's kingdom. That's definitely mentioned in the other three Gospels. They talk about Him being the Son of God, but do they ever talk about him being divine, meaning being God in the flesh? Or is there any place in the Bible outside of the Gospel of John and John chapter 1 that talks about this directly or hints at it? If someone was to ask you, let's say somebody knocks on the door, Jehovah's Witness or whatever, and they say, uh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, he's the Christ, but he's not He's not divine. He's not God. He was, he was a man. He was the Son of God in a certain sense, but he wasn't divine. Besides John chapter 1, is there any place in the Bible that really indicates that? That, that the, the Word of God, that the Son of God 
that he was he was existing from the beginning and that he was divine. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about this? So I'm just trying to I'm throwing this question out there, and it's a it's it's not an easy question to answer, but I think we should always be prepared to give an answer when people question us about things like this. And one place you may not have thought of, and I I read the early Christians because they're having to defend this view of the divinity of Christ that he was God in the flesh. They're defending it against the Jews and against the pagans and the philosophers, everybody else. So they're explaining it and they're using the other scriptures. So one place that several early Christian writers talk about, and this ties in with the last class that we had in Genesis. Actually, there's quite a few things we talked about in Genesis that are going to tie back into this. Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26. You can, you can turn there and look, but it says, this is the creation of man and woman. God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. He doesn't say, let me make man according to my image and my likeness. So who is the us that he's talking about? He's saying, let us make man in our image. He's talking about the people. Well, there's nobody there. At that point in time, he's talking about, exactly, he's talking about creating the people, but he says, God says, they're going to be made in our image and our likeness. The early Christians saw this reference to the plural as referring to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the water. So it talked about the Spirit of God right in the beginning of Genesis. So the idea was that the Father had His Spirit and the Word with Him from the beginning. So that this isn't a mistake or a bad translation, that this is actually reflecting what's going on there. Several early Christians, we'll, we'll post this in the notes, and I'll give you, um, I'll give you one quote from Theophilus writing around 180 A.D. So this is pretty early. And he wrote, this is in Ananicene Fathers, Volume 2, page 101. He wrote, God is found as if needing help to say, let us make man in our image after our likeness. But to no one else than to his own word and wisdom did he say, let us make. But uh, so Theophilus said this, uh, uh, Barnabas, Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, many other many other early Christian writers talk about this. There's an article, if you have Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, uh, there's a whole article on the Christ, the divinity of Christ that, that talks about this, how they saw the connections. Another verse you may not have thought of in connection with this, the, the divinity of Christ and the other Gospels, because people say, well, it's only the Gospel of John. This must have been a doctrine the Christians invented later. Matthew chapter 1, think about this. In Matthew chapter 1, it quotes Isaiah 7 14, very famous prophecy, but I want you to let's listen carefully to what it says. It says, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, we focus usually on the virgin birth. The virgin will be child and will give birth to a spirit of a son. But the second part is it says he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, did anyone ever call Jesus by the name Emmanuel? 
or call him Manny or any divis no. <laughs> any any derivative of Emmanuel. No, they called him Rabbi Teacher. Right. Nobody actually called him by that name, like my name is Chuck or Charles, but nobody called him Manny or Emmanuel. But the significance it goes back to Isaiah. It says he sh they'll call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That Jesus was God with us. He was born of a virgin and he is God with us. So this goes back to Matthew chapter 1. And Irenaeus again, in Anastasian Fathers, volume 1, page 452, he said, Carefully then has the Holy Spirit pointed out by what has been said, his birth from a virgin and his essence that he is God. For the name Emmanuel indicates this. It's a reflection of his divinity, which goes back to Isaiah and is confirmed by Matthew chapter 1. And of course, there are other verses in the New Testament that talk about this. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, we should be pretty familiar with that. It says, he is the image, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. So Colossians chapter 1, it, it's, it's, it's saying the same thing it says in John chapter 1. So Paul's making that point. And of course Hebrews chapter 1, there's a lot in Hebrews chapter 1 that talks about... Uh, really grasping who Jesus is. And I love the introduction to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, you can turn there, we're going to read verses 1 to 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. God, I'm reading from the New King James, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So it talks about Jesus here is before all ages. He's the son of God. Uh, all things were made through him and, uh, uh, and so forth. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 is... It's a quotation from, I believe it's Psalm 45, where it says, now this is referring to Jesus. It says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So Hebrew writer, he, the Hebrews writer is quoting from the Septuagint, word for word from Psalm 45, which speaks of a 
great and beloved warrior king who's going to come. And it refers to this, per, this king who's going to come as God. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But it also says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So how many gods are there? There's only one, but it's referring to this one as God, but is also being subordinate to God. So uh, that's this is in the Old Testament in, in the book of Psalms. And you got to keep in mind that this was written about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, talking about God who would come. Another, another passage that we're familiar with from the Gospel of Matthew is, quote, is a quote from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So think about this one. And again, like the other one where we focus on the virgin, this one will focus on Bethlehem. But think about everything that's going on here. And from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Some translations will say from eternity. So, doesn't just say that the ruler would come out of Bethlehem, the city of David, but also that his origins would be from everlasting, pointing way back to the beginning of all things. Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, it says, he talks to, to, says, to Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that expression, the wisdom of God, to a lot of the early Christians, this clicked with what it says in Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs, there's this discussion about the wisdom of God. And you remember it talks about wisdom has prepared her banquet, and wisdom is inviting all these people to come to her banquet. Most people don't want to go to her banquet. They want to go to somebody else's banquet. But wisdom has prepared a great feast and is inviting all the people to come in. But... Part of that discussion in Proverbs chapter 8, particularly in, in the Septuagint, it's a very more easier to see. There's some of, the, some of the things that it says there, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. It says, The Lord possessed me, referring to wisdom, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I've been established from everlasting, from the beginning of before there was ever an earth. So, in 1 Corinthians, it says that Christ is the wisdom of God. In Proverbs 8, it talks about God having wisdom with him from the beginning and all things being made through wisdom. So, this is not... Uh, there, there's, they saw more in this reference to Christ being the wisdom of God that tied back to something in the Old Testament. One of the questions that we got, that we got immediately after the lesson last week and even online was questions about, well, okay, I understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. As the early Christians explained that, that makes sense. But what about the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit fit into that? Well, this is a class on the Gospel of John, not on the Trinity. So I don't want to get too far afield of that. However, I will share with you there was a dispute in the church 
in the beginning, in the 300s, early, fairly early in the church, there was a dispute going on about the nature of Christ and how do we properly understand what the nature of Christ is in relationship between Christ and the Father. So bishops from all over the world got together in Nicaea, and this is the famous Council of Nicaea in 325. And, and they, they, want, they wanted to come up with a basic statement and say, look, something we can all agree on that is what the church has taught from the beginning. So they're not inventing some new doctrine. They're saying, no, this is what the church has always been teaching. And it was called, it's called the Nicene Creed. And some of us who have been brought up in uh, 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 churches that trace their roots way back in time are familiar with reciting the Nicene Creed. And the early version of the Nicene Creed that came out in 325, this to me is a good benchmark to say this is the understanding of the church in the beginning. This fits with all the scriptures that talk about the divinity of Christ and relationship between the Father and the Son. And if I'm not, if, if what I'm saying is consistent with this, I'm probably in pretty good shape as far as being orthodox. So I'm going to read this to you. And this is not the source of authority is the scriptures, but this is how the early Christians understood this, consistent with all the scriptures. So this is the, the original verse. It says, We believe in the one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. So that's the first part, about the Father. And the second part is about the Son. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and whose kingdom will have no end. So this is a basic description of the relationship between the Father and the Son. It mentions the Holy Spirit and uh, but doesn't, doesn't explain a lot about that. I want to turn now to something that's related to that in John chapter 1 and verse 18. Take a look there, and there's a statement there that I want to explore a little bit. It says in John chapter 1, verse 18, and I want you to think about our, what we discussed in our Genesis class in connection with this. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is at the bosom of the Father has declared him, or some translations it may say has made him known or has revealed him, something like that. So, this, this doesn't leave much wiggle room here. It says, no one at any time has seen God. It's just like this has never happened. But the Son has made him known. It, this reminds me of what happened in Exodus 33 when Moses, God asks Moses, what would you like? And Moses says, I just have one small request if I could just see you. And God's response is very telling. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, he says, you cannot see my face for no man 
can see my face and live. So God slams the door on the idea that we can actually see him. He says that in John chapter 1. He says it in Exodus 33 to Moses. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, In verses 15 and 16, he says that God, speaking of the Father, dwells in unapproachable light who no man has seen or can see. So this completely consistent picture, nobody has seen or can see God. You see God, you're dead. You're struck dead. It's impossible. Well, what do we do with all the examples in the Old Testament, starting in the book of Genesis, where it says that people saw God? Is there a contradiction in the scriptures here? Genesis 3.8, in the story of Adam and Eve, it says that God is walking in the garden. He's out for a stroll, and he's talking to them. In Genesis chapter 18, this is, this is the most disturbing example. Genesis chapter 18, this is where the Lord comes and has lunch with Abraham and Sarah and carries on a discussion with them before the destruction. It's the Lord, it's, it's the Lord and two angels before the, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells them about what's going to happen. Genesis 32 You'll remember that Jacob was wrestling with some mysterious person all night long, and he says, I saw God face to face, and my soul was saved. In Genesis 32, verse 30. What do we do with that? Scriptures have just told us clearly nobody can see the face of God, and he says, I saw God face to face. Isaiah chapter 6 The prophet Isaiah is in the throne room with the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the Lord is surrounded by seraphim who are shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he said, I saw that. So what do we do with that? Is there a contradiction in the scriptures? Well, The early Christian writers provided a pretty good explanation of how these two apparently contradictory things fit together, and it tells us something about the nature of God, and and it ties right back into John chapter 1. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to read some quotes from the early Christians who explain this tension here, this apparent contradiction. What do you do with this? says, no one has seen God, you can't see God, no one has ever seen God, it's impossible. But then there are people who say, I saw God face to face. What do you do with that? This is Theophilus, is writing around the year 180, he's a bishop who lived in Antioch in Syria. <clears throat> and he's, he writes, how do you now say that he walked in paradise? Hear what I say, the God and Father of all indeed cannot be contained. He is not found in a place, for there is no place of his rest. Instead, his word, through whom he made all things, being his power and his wisdom, assumed the character of the Father and Lord of all. He went into the garden in the person of God and conversed with Adam. The word then, being God and being naturally produced from God, whenever of the Father of the universe wills, he sends him to any place. And when the word appears, he is both heard and seen, being sent by him, and he is found in a specific place. 
That's in Nicene Fathers, Volume 2, page 103. Irenaeus, who was in uh, a bishop of the church in Lyon and Gaul, and he was a disciple of Polycarp, who in turn was a disciple of John, he wrote, The Son of God is implanted everywhere throughout Moses' writings. At one time, indeed, he spoke with Abraham when about to eat with him. At another time, he was with Noah, giving him the dimensions of the ark. At another time, he inquired after Adam. At another time, he brought down judgment upon the Sodomites. And again, he became visible and directed Jacob on his journey and spoke with Moses from the bush. So he's saying this is the same thing. This is the Son of God who's appearing. You can't see the Father. He is everywhere. He dwells in unapproachable light. But he will send his Son who can take the form of a person. He can take specific form and he can be a specific place at a specific time. Uh, Tertullian makes a general comment. He says uh, he's a, a leader of the church in North Africa who was a, a great writer. He said, the word is called his son. Under the name of God, he was seen in various ways by the patriarchs, and he was heard at all times by the prophets. That's in Ananicene Fathers, Volume 3, page 249. And one more quote, you know, I, I hate to bother you with a fourth quote here, but I really like this one, so I have to share it with you, because it gives me a picture in my mind that's really helpful. This is from Novation, who's a, uh, he's an elder in the church in Rome, writing around the year 235, I'm sorry, 235. And uh, it just it presents a clear picture to me. He says, Moses everywhere introduces God the Father as infinite and without end. He is not enclosed in any place, so with reason he can neither descend nor ascend, because he himself both contains and fills all things. However, Moses speaks of God descending to consider the tower that the sons of men were building. Whom do they pretend here to have to have been the God who descended to that tower, God the Father. But then he is enclosed in one place. So how does he embrace all things? Accordingly, neither did the Father descend, nor did an angel command these things. Then it remains that he must have descended, of whom the Apostle Paul says, He who descended is the same who ascended above all things, that he might fill all things." course he's referring to what it says in Ephesians chapter 4 which goes back to Psalm 68 that is the son of God the word of God yet the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us this must be Christ therefore Christ must be declared to be God that's Ananicene Fathers volume 5 page 627 so you get the picture the father can't be contained he's everywhere he can't be seen by men In a sense, he dwells in unapproachable light. It's impossible to see the Father. However, he can send his Son, who is the exact representation of his being and who we can see and who who, through whom everything was made and who took the form of flesh in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, So that's how these things fit together. So if you want to study the story, of the Son of God. You don't start in Matthew chapter 1. You start in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 23. Let's continue. John chapter 1 and verse 19. 
We never talk about these things, but uh, here we are. John, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 19. Let's, let's pick up where we left off from our last class. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethbara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. If you, if you, if you notice this, all, all four Gospels start in different places. They all pretty much start with the story of John the Baptist. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, start off talking about John the Baptist really before they even get into Jesus. The Gospel of Luke begins with the birth of John the Baptist, not the birth of Jesus. And even in Matthew chapter 3, right after the birth and childhood of Jesus, it talks, we're introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist before the ministry of Jesus. So there's a question which we were not going to answer right now, but I'll just throw this out there. Why is John the Baptist so incredibly important that the story has, all four stories really have to start with John the Baptist? We'll touch on that in the next lesson. I want to talk about, just, just to get started on, the three questions here. The three questions that John is asked. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? And are you the prophet? Three very important questions that had tremendous significance and tie back into the understanding of the Old Testament. And I want to, we're only going to have time to tackle the first one. This class, we'll pick up the next two in, in, the, in that class. The first one is, are you the Christ? He says, no, I am not. So why did they think that the Christ was coming? How did they know that the Christ was coming? What was the reason for their expectation that they're asking, are you the Christ? I think it goes back a thousand years beforehand to Psalm 2. If you want to take a look there right now. King David, who also serves as a prophet, wrote about the Christ who was going to come. And if they're reading the Old Testament in Greek, that's exactly what it says. In the Hebrew, it says the Messiah. In the, in the, in the Greek, it says the Christ. I'm reading from a Brenton's translation of the Septuagint, which is even a little more literal than the, the, uh, the Orthodox study, study Bible that I typically quote from. And it says in Psalm 2, verse 2, The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his Christ. 
And in some of your tra Bible translations, it may say the anointed one. That's just exactly the same thing. The Christ is Greek. Anointed one is English. Messiah is Hebrew. Same word, three different languages, same term exactly. The, the kings of the earth and the rulers gather themselves together against the Lord and against his Christ. So the idea is that the Christ was going to come. And in that passage in Psalm 2, it talks about the kings, that, that, he, that God would establish his king, the Christ, who would be opposed by the kings and rulers of the earth, and it also says that he would be called God's son. Let's read together Psalm 2, verses 6 to 9. Let's see that for ourselves. I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible, verses 6 to 9. This is about the Christ, the anointed one. Starting at verse 6, But I was established as king by him over his holy hill of Zion, declaring the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall shepherd them with an iron staff. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So this is a prophecy from David about the Christ who would come that's given a thousand years beforehand. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan reveals to David some significant things about this one who would rule over God's kingdom and who would be called God's son. This is also about a thousand years beforehand. This is in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, or in if you have an uh, Septuagint, it be 2 Kingdoms chapter 7. We're going to read verses 12 to 16. <laughs> talking about the same person. So Nathan is speaking to King David. He says, It shall come about when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your seed after you who will come from your own body and I will prepare his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish his throne forever. I'll be a father to him and he shall be a son to me a son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from those whom I withdrew from my presence. And his house will be made sure and his kingdom shall be forever. So this is God's king who will reign over the eternal king. It says that God would raise up one who would be destined to sit on, uh, on David's throne. It would come from David's body. It would be a direct descendant. He'd reign over eternal kingdom. He built a house for God's name, and he would be called God's son, just as it says in Psalm 2. Now, this is a huge issue for Muslims. I lived in Albania, a Muslim country, and the standard thing that the Muslims will say is God can't have a son. The Christians change this after the fact. That, 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 that Jesus, they'll say Jesus was a great prophet. They'll say, in fact, Jesus was the Christ, but he's not God's son that that was something that the Christians came up with. Now, of course, they'll say the, Christ the Christians changed the New Testament. So my response to them is, we don't need the New Testament to establish that. That's in the Old Testament. That was this is written a thousand years beforehand. It's in Psalm 2, and it's in, it's in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
This is, this is the scriptures of the Jews, which would, it would be impossible for the Christians to have changed that. This was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. The prophet Daniel also spoke about the Christ who was to come. In Daniel chapter 9, let's turn there. So this is the question, are you the Christ? Why would they be asking that question? What does the Old Testament say about the Christ? In Daniel chapter 9, there's the famous prophecy. Daniel is praying for the return of the, of the, of the, the people from captivity. And the angel Gabriel reveals to him that things that are going to happen in the future, and it pertains to the Christ. And I'm going to start reading in verse 24, down to verse 26. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish sin, to set an end to sin, to wipe out lawlessness, to atone for wrongdoing, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. You shall know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the word to be answered and to build Jerusalem until Christ the Prince, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Then the time shall return, the streets and the walls shall be built, and the time, and the, the time shall be left desolate, desolate. After 62 weeks, the anointed one, which means the Christ, shall be put to death Yet there shall be no upright judgment for him, and he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary with the prince who is coming, and they shall be cut off with a flood and to the end of the war, which will be cut short. He shall appoint the city to desolation. So, context of this, Daniel is writing about 550 years before the time of Christ. The Jews, the Babylonians had leveled Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple had been demolished. The walls were torn down. Daniel was in captivity. And so he says, he talks about a certain amount of events that are going to happen. He says, first of all, the order is going to be issued for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Of course, that was under Cyrus at, uh, in 536 B.C., shortly after this prayer. And then and he says, after a certain period of time after that happens, the clock starts with the order to rebuild Jerusalem. And he says, after a certain amount of time, which is expressed symbolically as the 62 weeks, he says that the Christ, the Prince, will come, that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, Christ, the Prince, will come, and then he will be killed. And then after that, the city will be completely destroyed by another king who comes. So, this is the sequence of events. Jerusalem rebuilt, the Christ comes, the Christ is killed, the city is wiped out by a foreign, a foreign army and destroyed for good. Why is this particular prophecy significant? Well, if the Jews are still waiting for the Christ to come, those Jews who still take the prophecies seriously and are waiting for the Christ to come, according to the prophecy of Daniel, in A.D. 70, shortly after Jesus was killed in Jerusalem, the Romans came under Titus and leveled the city of Jerusalem. It was absolute slaughter. And they issued coins, Judea capta coins, throughout the empire to celebrate this tremendous victory. 
And if you go into Rome, you'll still see the Arch of Titus celebrating the, the complete conquest of the Jews by Titus. And you see the lampstand being carried back by Roman soldiers into the city along with the captives. So AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was never rebuilt. Sacrific- sacrificial system was done away with. So according to Daniel chapter 9, the Christ had to come before that happened. So if the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah... Clearly, they have missed the boat. The Messiah had to come before Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. And of course, Jesus died around A.D. 33. So, tremendously significant prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. It's also significant for Muslims because Muslims teach, right in the Quran, Jesus was the Christ, he was a prophet, he was sent by God, he did come, But they teach he didn't really die on the cross. It only appeared that he was killed. Well, Daniel said 550 years beforehand that he would be cut off. The Messiah, the Christ, would be cut off. He had to be killed. That's why I tell the the Muslims, the Christians didn't make this up. The Christians didn't change this. This This was in the Hebrew scriptures written hundreds of years beforehand. Uh, So... I hope this can give us an appreciation. When the question is asked of John the Baptist, are you the Christ? The people had been waiting for a thousand years based on what David had said, on what Nathan had said, and also based on what Daniel had promised that the Christ would come. And all these different aspects, there were tremendously detailed prophecies about that. And this is important for us to understand when we read the Gospel of John to know what they meant when they were talking about this and particularly helpful as we're reaching out to Jews, to unbelievers, and to Muslims that this is all fulfilled prophecy. So we'll pick up in the next class. We'll look at the other two questions. This was, we're looking at, are you the Christ? What did that mean to them? And the next question, are you Elijah? Interesting that he said no. And then, and then the third one, very significant, are you the prophet? Amen.